0: Welcome to Danny Goldberg's Rock and Rolls Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared connection, and we are dependent on you, our community, for support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com Danny and either click on the Donate button or bookmark the Amazon link through which we get a small percentage of all your purchases. Your support will allow Danny to continue his captivating talks and interviews. Hi, this is Danny Goldberg, and this is Rock and Rolls. And um, this conversation is with my friend Zach Leary, who's also kind enough to host me in his podcast studio here in Santa Monica it's a first for me and for him, as far as i know have have you had anyone else be the host here in the studio
1: i haven't man i haven't so i'm I'm sitting in my normal host chair for my podcast and so it's good Role reverse we'll talk about roles well that's uh, that's uh, that's cool and um you know i just um
0: i want to start with one uh, as you know, I met you through Tim Leary, your yeah. dad yeah. Uh, and um I, I can't help but notice from Facebook and from the world that we see electronically that you're doing kirtan these days. Yeah. And, um, you know, my impression of Tim was that he kind of uh, looked down on all this um, Eastern religious stuff and the, particularly the, the Hindu bhakti notion of it. And I'm wondering, you know, and I, yet I know how close you were and are to him. Mm. So how do you integrate sort of the intellectual skepticism that I always felt he brought to the Ramdas
1: branch of the Harvard LSD team with, with your, with, with Kirtan? Well, it's a good question. It's one I think about often. And I think there's some mystery that, that surrounds the answer to the question, because if you do go back to um, sort of the peak periods of the sixties and listen to some old vintage Tim lectures from the day from like 65, 66, when he was first Gestating the tune in, turn on, drop out philosophy. And there's this one lecture where he's just sitting there in Indian robes and he's like, tune in, surround yourself with sacred objects and spiritual books. And he was, this was pre ramdas This was still Richard Albert, mm-hmm. but he's kind of in that zone a little bit. And granted that was sort of the parlance of the times. And it was yeah. just, it's just what people did back then. So, so combine that with, you know, when he was dying, uh, you know, and, and when he first knew he was dying in 95, the first person he called was Ram hmm. Combine that with the psychedelic experiences based off the Tibetan book of the dead. So, you know, you kind of mix all of these things together and I think it goes a little bit deeper. I mean, he was a, he was a real cynical little shit about anything organized, you know? Right. So, but I think deep down inside, if you just said, Hey, you know, come on, dad. Bhakti is just about love. It's the yoga of love and devotion. What's wrong with that? And he'd be like, nothing. That's great. That's fantastic. You know, so I think a lot of it was um, intellectual, like huffing and puffing. You know, like he was, he was, uh, yeah. um, as you know, Bob Weir likes to say, he was pathologically anti-authoritarian. Yeah. So like any old man in a blanket or any institution, any of the world's religions, he would just automatically just dissect them because he was all about the power of the individual. But if he think if if I think if he saw it that I was doing it with my intention, that I do it, why I do it, why I sing Kirtan, I think he would have been supportive. Yeah.
0: And do you and 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 what what was it inside you that sort of felt comfortable flowing in that direction? Because it's a relatively
1: new. Endeavor of yours is it not? Relatively, yeah. It's about what I've been doing in about um, about seven years, seven eight years now. Oh, I didn't know it was quite that long. Yeah, yeah. and yes. Well, <clears throat> I first discovered Kirtan actually when I was a teenager, actually through the through the ISKCON movement, through the Hare Krishna movement, mm. and yeah, I was immediately transfixed, and I was like, "Wow, this is amazing!" You know, this is you know something about this ecstatic celebration is real. And I did not continue the practice for many, many, many years after that. I just thought, wow, okay, you know, this is very interesting. And I got into the Bhagavad Gita and things like that. And then I kind of just put it away for a long time. And I don't know, Danny, it's just one of those things. It's like, it's the classic when the student is ready, the teacher appears sort of thing. And then mm. I just rediscovered Ram Dass, you know, well into my adult life in my thirties. And and it just hit me in a different way. and it And it spoke to me mm. and it just felt like a practice that... That worked. I mean, specifically with Kirtan, you know, I'm I'm somewhat of a musician, not a very good one. But when I started incorporating music into my practice, I mean, it's a great shortcut into spiritual practice. Hey, it's music. I get to play music and, and worship the divine. What's better than that? So that really worked for me. Mm. Yeah.
0: So I noticed uh, on your blog, you, re- you you were affected by David Bowie's passing. I was. And uh, tell, tell me about about how he fits into your view of the universe. And was he somebody when you were a kid that meant a lot to you or, or, or
1: did it come to you later as an artist? No, he was. He was um, my mom. You know, arguably the best thing my mom ever did to me, did for me, was turn me on to great music. You know, she instilled that in my consciousness at such a young age and now you know all of these years later 42 years later i'm so thankful for that i mean what a great thing to do for your kids is mm-hmm. turn them on to david bowie and pink floyd and lou reed and billy Holiday, and so cool so yeah david bowie was my mom's favorite artist like it was her you know like for me jerry garcia it was her main right. iconic cultural touchstone. So at an early age, you know, there was always, there were a lot of, she had every David Bowie album on vinyl and every album too. I mean, deep tracks and she listened to, you know, the B side of that and saying everything, not just greatest hits. You know, she was really into Bowie. So Bowie was the first music that I really started to understand that I kind of grew up, I grew up just, um, you know, wanting to know more about. And listening to the lyrics, it was probably the first lyrics I ever kind of opened up the gatefold and a vinyl record, and kind of was reading the lyrics, and and um, so just you know Bowie was just so iconic for her, so um, you know which which led me into a lot of other exploratory avenues for for my musical exploration for sure, but you know, but Bowie to me. Also, you know, adding to that, just going beyond my mom, I really feel like there was just something about, like, his passing that really felt like the end of something. I mean, I'd have to say that Bowie is one of the most influential cross-genre, you know, musical artists, musical forces that really just used music as his as his canvas, you know. And I think he was one of the most artistic forces around that I just I feel like it's the end of something, you know. What do you think it's the end of? Well, it's just, oh, God. I mean, it's not the end of rock and roll. Obviously, you know, rock and roll will go on, and I'm sure there are other great artists out there who will come and emerge and be inspired by him and will still, you know, but, you know, as we get older, you know, all of these guys, these guys, these tent poles, you know, the Lennon and McCartneys, the Dillons, the Garcias, the Jaggers, the Bowies, you know, they're all, they're all kind of starting to go. And I think just the fact that Bowie stayed current, for the most part, for 46 years of recorded music, I just feel it's the end of an institution, mm. you know? Mm. I mean, his last album that came out three days before he died is really good. Yeah, yeah. It's really great. I mean, who else does that? I mean, you know, who else has stayed so current for that long? It's hard. Yeah, it's very, very it's hard. It's very hard. And he has. So I just feel it's like the end of just like this beacon of just real artistic integrity for, in some ways that lasted, transcended decades, you know?
0: Yeah. As you, as you know, I worked with Warren Zevon on his last few albums. Yeah. And like Bowie, and as far as I know, they're the only two people that consciously made an album when they knew they were dying. Yvonne um, did it too, right. and uh, Warren definitely knew right. he was dying. And and the miracle with Warren was that he lived long enough to finish the album. You know, when we put him into the studio, it was about just doing a song or two, and and he died uh, six days after the album came out. You know, he just kept himself alive long enough to see it go on the charts. Um, Bowie uh, passed just before the record came out, but it's an interesting um, headspace in terms of this whole idea of roles. And a public persona that, that nobody becomes famous by accident, mm. in my experience. And an enormous amount of conscious effort goes into that. And you don't stay relevant for 40 years without trying to stay relevant for 40 years. And yet, you know, as you, when you know you're, you're going to leave this mortal coil, as the bard said, you know, you must be defining yourself in other ways. It's an interesting, in, interesting thing. And, of course, Tim also died consciously, I mean he knew he was dying and he made a public spectacle of it he did. you know I I was a, did his project with him he did many other projects and when I came to see him when when he first when told everybody he was dying within 5 minutes he said let's do a project what projects can we do you know <laughs> <laughs> and luckily I happened to be running a record company and could spend the company's money doing him you but know a film and a yeah. film and a record you know Uh, beyond life. But, but, you know, he, he, it's a funny headspace, the idea of being that concerned and focused on this world when, when you can see the next one or something coming next, uh, five minutes away. Um, What, what did Tim, you know, did he talk about the, 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 it does seem kind of like a contradiction and yet, it's a, it's also a gift to the, the the rest of us who get to hear the Bowie record or the yeah. Warren record, yeah. or 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 what Tim contributed in, in, in the end. What what do you make of that um, that juxtaposition? And because you can't the contradiction you being. can't take your name with you. I mean, I don't know whether right. the, I I tend to bet on the likelihood that the soul lives on. I can't prove it, but I I'm bet that's what I think in my opinion. There are people who, who are very skeptical about that, but no matter whether you're a dogmatic Christian who believes there's an exact hierarchy in heaven or, or whether you're a complete skeptic about it or a committed atheist, I don't think anyone thinks that you take your name with you. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know even in my dreams, most of the time I don't have a name. Uh, do, do you know your name when you're dreaming? No, I, I never not. have, I don't have a name. I'm no. me. Yeah. You know, but, uh, um, absolutely. Right. So, um, so that's a funny thing that, that kind of a, we've both worked with artists. I mean, part of your background is working with a number of rock artists. Yeah. And, uh, and then you grew up with a celebrity, uh, mm. and yet, and there's this ten that a tendency to look at celebrity as this unspiritual thing as a superficial thing. And yet it can be a vehicle for anything.
1: Well, I think, you know, just go back a, just a couple steps here for a second. I it was just, when you were talking about, uh, Zvon and Bowie and Tim, I think, and I, this hadn't occurred to me until just now, but Tim had a lot in common with Bowie, in the sense of like constant reinvention, constant reinvention, never standing still, never standing still, always finding you know whatever sort of new little node that you could latch on to that can keep you interested in whatever it is you're doing. Tim had no interest in playing the greatest hits, right, at all. You know he 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 wouldn't do that he wouldn't do that game I would sort of, you remember that there was that phase in in Bowie's career Do you remember sort of in the um maybe the early nineties mid nineties where Bowie wouldn't play any hits live Oh, God, I forgot yeah. that. Yeah, yeah you remember? It's so weird. He'd do those tours, and everyone would go, and he'd be all pissed off. He wouldn't yeah. sing changes, you yeah. know, but he finally relented and did it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. As a manager of musical artists, I'm not into that. I think we right. should play. Springsteen always plays Born to Run. Every,
1: every single yeah, Steve night. Steve Earle plays Copperhead Road, you right. know? I'm, But Tim wouldn't do that. Yeah, He wouldn't play The Greatest Hits. Right. If you talk to him about tune in, turn on, drop out in 1994. He'd, he'd roll his you, eyes. He'd tell you to fuck off. Yeah. Literally tell you to fuck off. So... You know, just this constant dance of reinvention and keeping yourself interested. And death was just the final, it was the final dance for him. Very Ram Dassian, ironically. I mean, going back to that, yeah. very yeah. ironic for me. And there's a lot of contradiction there. But, you know, he was also so aware. I mean, you know, we don't have to talk about Tim forever, but he was so aware. He was so self-aware of the work that he did. He archived everything. He saved yeah. everything. Yeah. He knew the name would live on. He knew the work would live on, and he had that famous quote, um, everybody get when I'm dead, everybody will get the Timothy Leary they deserve."
0: Yeah, yeah, nice you know. quote, and right So well, if you don't mind cool if you don't mind staying on, him for no, afraid, no, it's more fine. Minutes, yeah, of course. Uh, you know, I was trying to think of things that you're uniquely got you know there there really isn't, in my mind, and probably this is by design, there really isn't the definitive um Tim Leary book. Or or even Tim Leary documentary. I quite love the documentary about him and Ram Dass. I forget what it's... Dying to Know. Dying to Know that that hopefully will eventually show up on all the internet services. I I strongly recommend it. But the the Robert Greenfield book, for example, you know, was... was, We don't like that one. Was was awful. You know, it was was weird that it even existed, that why someone would want to write a book about someone they so obviously didn't like. And, um, yeah, well, you know, uh, <laughs>
1: we were conned into that though. <laughs> we, we, we were, what? we were, we were smooth talked into that one. Is is that right? Yeah. 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 Greenfield. Um, uh, you know, he had, be- he had written the, the Garcia book, Dark Star. Right. Um, and Dar- Garcia was alive right. when that book was starting to be written and it, it sort of God, it just took the shape of like, Oh shit, this is kind of a hack job. Oh my God. This is this Dark Star book. And then, um, Greenfield befriended a couple of people who were who was who were close to Tim and was like, "Hey, Greenfield's a good guy. you should really hang out with him, and you know this book is going to be kind of different and he came into our life, we let him in open door policy, he was hanging up at the house, he spent a lot of time with Tim, he spent a little bit of time with me, and not too much, and uh really it was a real mensch, you know, so we thought, and he kind of came in there, just hanging out and and then this book came out what, about a year after Tim died. And, yeah. and we were like, what the fuck, man? Yeah. And so, but, you know, but Greenfield spent his whole life and he did the Garcia book, the Tim book. He did the Rolling Stones book.
0: The Rolling Stones book, my
1: memory of that was actually a pretty good book. It was a cool book. It was, uh, but it still followed the same pattern. He makes it, every book is about the dark side. The dark side. Yeah. Right. That's, his, right. that's, his, yeah, that's his trip. He's the skeptic, which he... He he would say his quote-unquote truth. But But there is no definitive. I mean, there's flashbacks, Tim's autobiography. um, uh, There's a book called I Have America Surrounded by a guy named John Higgs, who's a British author. It came out on a British imprint. That's a pretty pretty good biography, too.
0: Yeah. There was some guy around the house in those days, you know— that said he was doing a book that sounded like it was going to be amazing and it never came out. I forget the guy's name. Was it Prince or something? David Prince. Yeah. You know, whatever happened yes, to him?
1: there was. Well, what happened with that, that book became Death and Dying, which was actually, um, uh, are you serious? Do you remember who that guy was? He came in and took that book over. Oh, okay. Yeah. That was the Death and Dying book that Tim kind of started and kind of wrote the outline for and developed the structure for, which was about the death process. And David Prince was going to um oh yeah, oddly enough and dying to know the brief second that you're in it. You're in it for like two seconds. Yeah. Yeah, you're with David Prince. You guys are pushing the wheelchair. Right. 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 (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and David just, I guess, I don't know what happened. I just don't think he had it in him.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. That's uh well one of the one of the one of those things. I mean there is some um poetry to maintaining a level of mystery and and that some things are, you know are just supposed to be there, like you said, for people to get what they what they deserve. Well, I like it.
1: You know why I like it because I I think about this. I've thought about this a lot recently. It's very much um, it's just a story I make up in my own head. It's very much in alignment with um with uh, the Hindu mythology. Is that you know there is no what's the definitive Hindu epic or Veda? There isn't one. There's the Gita. There's the Ramayan. There's you know, there's the Rig Veda. There's the Bhagavatam. You know whatever it is, there isn't one. Well, no. I mean I think there isn't. You you get whatever you're into. Yeah. yeah. If you're a Shivite, you go that way. If you're a Shakta, you go that way. If you're a Vaishnav, you go that way. You know, there isn't any one text. There's no single Bible. Well You know? No, there's not. But I think I think the Bhagavad Gita is pretty it's pretty
0: it's, universally it's it's, it's, it's kind of the Beatles of,
1: <laughs> the of that, Rogers. you know, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean,
0: I, yeah. I, I do, I do, I do think that the, in terms of the West, I don't know. She bites wouldn't say so though. Yeah. I don't know what it looks like. I said in terms of the West, yeah. I, I, you know, yeah. and I'm sure, um, I think that's, yeah, It's just the way, you know, thousands of years of, 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 of human beings, um, so, so you're doing this podcast? It's all happening. Yeah, and that's been what the last year or so.
1: Well, we just uh, uh, episode we're 26 episodes in. I did my 26 episodes. Okay, so that's six six months. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And um, what was the what was your thought process in starting that? What are you what are you trying to do with it? What. It's such a funny thing. This thing, we're all doing each other's podcasts and it's, 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 I'm excited to be part of it in my little way because I'm not a musician and I'm not a, never part of any kind of creative movement. I've always been kind of the business person trying to market other people's creativity. Yeah. And, um, and it's, uh, it's, it's this nascent thing coming along at a time when the rest of the internet is all clicks and short impulses and that's right. Tweets. And then this is the long form alternative. This is the vinyl of, That's right. you know, a yeah. the digital world, you know, and there's obviously, um, you know, uh, people that want that and, um, and it's incredibly easy to do it. So there's thousands of us doing this and, um, it's a, it's a time commitment and it's, it's, it requires, um, self invention. You know, it's not like you go and get a record deal and somebody there's an A&R man and a publicist mm-hmm. and a, somebody doing the artwork and right. and the infrastructure a book publisher where they send you the proofs and you know you get blurbs um what what's what what's your what's your vision for it and and um how do you see it f- sort of fitting into the into the
1: conversation well i can start with by telling you why i started it hmm. so i spent the last uh couple years about two and a half years working on a book Um, it was my first book and, um, it's still, still working on it and making a lot of progress recently, but, you know, I kind of hit, I kind of hit a wall with the book and some stuff went on in my life and I just had to find some reinvention and, you know, some, just some things happened and, uh, and I just kind of hit a wall with the book and I felt really stagnant in terms of my creativity. And I was like, fuck, you know, what's what's a good way to sort of jumpstart my creativity? And it just kind of hit me pretty quickly, almost overnight. I was like, oh, start a podcast. You know, um, I know a lot of amazing people, you know, present company included. And that was part of it. I was like, gosh, well, I talk to so many amazing mm-hmm. people all the time. Uh, I think I have something to say. I have some, enough self-confidence to say, oh, yeah, maybe I do have a, a thing or two to say. But it was really just... It wasn't even about like that I have so much to offer the world in terms of, uh, you know, philosophy and, and being sort of an armchair pundit. It was a way to force myself to jumpstart my creativity. I was like, okay, I'm going to put out a podcast and you really look like a dumb shit if you put out a podcast and you only put out three episodes. You know, that's not a good look. Right. You know, right. that's a bit dilettante. Shall we? Yeah. Yeah. It was just like, that's not yeah. a good look. So yeah. it was sort of like, I put it out and I built this website, I designed this logo and it was just like, you know, so I put it out and I just started rolling. I just started asking a lot of people to do it. So it kind of just got me in this mode and because I'm doing it weekly, it got me in this mode of being more creative, mm. singing more kirtan, working on mm. my book more and mm. I'm invited to uh, give a lot more talks and, than I had been in a while and do things like that. So, I mean, that was the personal impetus behind it. And and now I'm, you know, 26 episodes in I'm, I do feel, Hey, maybe I do have a, a thing or two to share with the world and it's a lot of fun. It's
0: great. Steve Earl is a big proponent of the idea that doing any creative thing stimulates other creative things. Yes. He went through, this I didn't thing. know that he went through <laughs> this thing of writing a haiku every day for 365 days, you know, huh. and he, he paints and he'll act and he'll, uh, you know he'll do things that that don't make money and sometimes don't reach a big audience because he feels it keeps him alive as an artist for his his day job, which is songwriting and 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 performing. He's he's a huge uh, he's a huge proponent to that. And as anybody who listens to the podcast will know, I always find a way of mentioning him since he's my client, best friend, and you know one <laughs> of my so awesome. one of my idols. You know, yeah. My- um, the the um. You know, I grew up, my mom was a, was a, uh, in her mind and in real life was a poet, not a commercially successful poet, but she, you know, she was very proud of the fact that William Carlos Williams wrote the introduction to her one book, which is pretty cool since he also wrote the introduction to Allen Ginsberg's Howl and his, you know, poetry fans view him as a icon and, and, and she was, uh, you know, pre-feminist and didn't really, um, didn't really um, have the kind of willpower and strength to deal with the 1950s culture and become like a public commercial success. But I grew up in an atmosphere of this intense reverence for creativity mm. and feeling that the only way I could be a worthwhile person was if I was creative. And I was not particularly creative. I couldn't play any instrument that I couldn't... Um, uh, you know, I, I wasn't a natural uh, performer of any kind. And I had what I guess today people would call ADD. I, was, I, I was, had a very hard time writing things, even though I, in my mind, was always writing something. It somehow never got onto paper. So I've walked around for my whole life with this pressure on myself to to do this kind of a thing. I think I got a couple of books out and and then found a vocation of working for creative people. Um, but But that kind of pressure about, about me only feeling I have value based on um, output is uh, I don't think the most cosmic way of looking at my soul or my life. Yeah, And, and I think about your background and growing up with somebody that was extremely into uh, external externality as well as having a strong inner life and the kind of pressure that comes of growing up in at Los Angeles, hmm. which is, which is a subculture part of Los Angeles that I think you grew up in that has a lot of people that are public and doing things. And, um, you know, how do you, how do you try to balance a commitment to really, uh, being a soul and, and the, you've written eloquently about the, uh, world of devotion mm. and, and obviously Kirtan is all about going inside and the, and the uh, marketplace of media, which is where you've made your living and, and, mm. and, and which is a lot of fun, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and has a lot of, a lot of reasons to keep doing it. How how do you try to balance those things inside your head? Hmm.
1: I think you just go back to some really core principles of um that can be found within within Bhakti Yoga. And we we're just talking about the Bhagavad Gita. And you know, the Gita talks about this so much is that, um, you know, every action that you perform, everything that you do, you're doing it for me, for, for, in the Gita sense, you're doing it for Krishna. Everything that you're doing is an act of devotion, even the mundane
0: well, that's, yeah, that's how right. it's supposed to be. That's, that's how it's supposed yeah, to be. That's, that's, yes, yeah, that, if, that. if you're, a, if you're a Arjuna, if you're a pure devotee, you, do it, you offer you,
1: it all to, to God. You yeah. offer it all to Krishna. And in the, you know, complete sattvic sense, that means you are offering, you're taking out the garbage in the same way that you're offering making a podcast. It's all just an act of devotion, you know. So, I mean, that's the ultimate way. This is the way of the, the path of the yogi. Very hard to do. So you know, I'm not really look I mean I've been blessed, I guess you know, for the last fifteen years of, of of my life to be able to have a lot of great opportunities where I've participated in a lot of venues for for my work and now in, in my work as well that y- you get to have a lot of fun with the role and because you get to have fun with the role of playing podcaster or a blogger or a uh, you know digital media strategist that I'm really not too attached to the results I, I, is is it I'm really not like of course I I want some people to listen to the podcast I mean I'm not you know stupid but I I really don't care all that much it's not why I'm doing it I'm not doing it to be Duncan Trussell or Mark Marin or something I'm doing it because it's a lot of fun it's really rewarding and it's a great way. We all have to spend our time doing something. Right. So, you know, why not do something that is is um, complementary to my soul? Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, the original question is like, yeah, you know, if you get to dance and play in the world of of media and whether or not you think it's the Maya or you don't, but it's a, it's an amazing kind of display of uh, the collective consciousness res- representing itself within the form of technology. If you get to play in that space and still maintain your your uh, spark and your divinity and your integrity as a soul, go for it. So you just, you just dance between the two worlds, I think.
0: Well, it's good to aspire to. Martin Luther King had this sermon yeah. that I always quote, uh, The Drum Major Instinct. It's on YouTube, and it's one of his famous uh, yeah. sermons, and he talks about... Um, the desire for attention. You know, he quotes some biblical thing about James and John has to sit next to Jesus side, And that, that, mm. that's, that's a symbol of uh, uh, wanting attention. And he says, everybody wants praise. He says, the only time people don't like praise is when someone else is getting it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then he, uh, and then he goes on to talk about, he actually uses this beautiful phrase. He says that we all get that warm glow when we see our name in print. You know, uh, yes. and uh, you know, Martin, Doctor King was copying to this. You know, and um, I was just uh, mentioned in the New York Times the other day, and I got a warm glow. You know, and I'm then I'm embarrassed by that because I you're embarrassed in, by it, that. You got the warm glow. I'm mean. embarrassed in my mind by how good it made me feel for that minute. Because my concept of truth is that is that I shouldn't be dependent on that, and that and that that's a, I could want to be able to enjoy it, but you know, the, the overly mm. being attached to that creates the flip side of being bummed out that I'm not getting any attention, and uh, I must say I I still struggle with that. I I, of I don't. Uh, I, 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 uh, my idea of of uh, of growing up is is to be only bummed out for fifteen or twenty minutes instead of fifteen <laughs> or twenty hours, but I can't get it down to zero. Uh, well, yeah, man. When but- I don't think I'm getting uh, attention that I that I that I that I covet, and, and it's so hard uh. for me to just juxtapose that part of my brain with the part that when I can meditate and when I can really tune into, I happen to love the form of the divine mother that just happens to speak to me. I don't believe that I believe there's formless is fine and there's many other forms, but for my personal way, I, I relate to the, to to the mother partially because my teacher Hilda Charlton, you know, was a woman and she spoke about the divine mother. It was the first time I heard that phrase and partially for those mysterious reasons that we never exactly understand. (laughs) But, um, I, I have a hard time justifying my, my uh, juxtaposing my, 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 um, desire for praise and my aversion and then someone wrote me a mean email earlier today like a very minor snippy email and i was like bummed out for 20 minutes about it yeah you know um, but hey we
1: all want external
0: satisfaction we do we do like so what do you do inside your head we're supposed to be of some service to people listening to this if we can yeah somebody says something that hurts your feelings Or somebody writes something that hurts your feelings or somebody on the blog says
1: something. Happened to me today. Got a nasty email today. Yeah.
0: So so what do you do inside yourself to to try to balance from that?
1: Well, the first thing that I do is. uh, I'm glad you asked because today I got a really nasty email. From my ex-wife. Super hurtful. Um, But, you know, the first. Gosh, I mean, this, this sounds like, you know, and I'm not. I'm not that spiritually advanced in terms of my practice, but I am in terms of knowledge. <laughs> Is that like the? We've got thing? the books on the shelf. I oh, haven't read them all, but it, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've read a lot of them. Yeah. And um, you know, and it's it, the first thing I did was uh, you know, I just I stepped inside of her, and God, you know, she's still angry. She's still sad. You know, she's still really hurt, mm. and she needs to lash out at me still. All this time later, it, it's fine. You know, I can take it. Um, and just step inside of her shoes and have you know compassion for that, and the second thing I have to do, which is more of a recovery twelve stepy thing because i 'm in that world too, is um uh call somebody and really determine what 's real mm. what's reality you know what's or you know what's reality as a, as as it applies to me um, so you know when you when you're inside of those things when you're inside of conflict and it's just kind of wrapped around you. Um, you know, you just, uh, it, it's, it's this classic stuff. It's about going within, you know, it's really about going within and, and being in touch with your own true nature. I don't believe I'm a bad person anymore. Mm. did for a lo- a lot, a long time, mm. you know, that's why I started using heroin and mm. stuff. Didn't feel I was a good person. Uh, which is just the core of it and and the essence of it is you just don't have enough love for yourself that you can't take care of yourself, and that's a really good temp solution, so you think, but now I do you know now i'm you know if there's anything one thing that I can take away from being so close to Ramdas for the last few years and to his teachings is that um you know I too have a spark of divinity, mm. I too. You know, it's, right. it's, it's unlikely
0: me. that God made the entire universe except for me. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> exactly. That I'm the anomaly, right. you know, right. I'm, I'm, the yeah. anomaly, and I too can cultivate that divinity within me that makes me okay. That allows me to look hmm. at myself in the mirror. And if people want to lash out at me, you know, I'll deal with it.
0: Yeah. I guess the, then there's the sort of my, you know, the idea of observing just what, you know, watching my hurt feelings. And then just Plain saying, witness. okay, uh, yeah, the witness thing, which is okay, it hurts, but is this the only definition of who I am, or is this, is there another aspect no. of, 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 of 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 reality? Yeah. Um, how do you? Uh, how does Twelve Steps fit into um, the kind of Eastern spiritual ideas that you're involved with? Is it is it is it parallel, do They intertwine? Or are they separate?
1: A lot of it is um, it is intertwined. I think 12-step has a lot of uh, um, parallels with Buddhism, actually, with like um, uh, Vipassana in the sense that uh, there are a lot of core Buddhist principles where when you're meditating, you're meditating on exactly what is and the acceptance of exactly the way the universe works, life, death, suffering, pain, joy, all of it. You're not trying to deny any of it. You're not trying to run away from any of it. It's you're meditating on exactly what is and that's okay. And just breathe into it. 12 step is very much like that. It's about, it's an examination of, of the state of things of your own spiritual condition and of all of these little, you know, ingredients that make up the nature of, of yourself and of your incarnation and taking a really close, hard look at them. Um, now, look, there are some things in 12 step that I've had to adapt over the years since I've been more involved in Eastern spirituality and that, you know, 12 step can sometimes devolt, uh, default to focusing on what's wrong with you rather than what's right with you. You know, like the inventory process, which is, you know, and the defects of character and examination and like oh, everything that's wrong with me, the disease, hmm. rather than just looking at the joy and what's what's right with you. So there's been some adaptation there, but overall, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of similarities, you know, and you know, when you, when you come into 12 step the first time, and especially if you've had a, a bad go at it and like, you know, your, your buddy Steve Earl knows, or, or a lot of people that, you know, when you have a serious heroin addiction, you first come into 12 step boy, you really think, shit, I'm, I'm, I made a mess of things. And somehow you get to the point where you're like, oh, wow, not only is this fixable, but I can be. I can be loved again.
0: Yeah, Steve yeah. feels Bill Wilson is, was a saint.
1: I, I, I think so. I mean, look, the, you know, the the um, chapter five of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the, the famous chapter, How It Works, was written in 20 minutes. It was a download. Really? Yeah. Wow. It was a download. You wow. know, the 12 steps, the whole preamble, it was a complete transmission. Yeah. That's
0: pretty... Eh. This may not be true, so as a disclaimer. Yeah. But but I had heard that he had at one point taken psychedelics. Did you ever hear that? That's
1: absolutely true. He took LSD five times, I believe. Right. Yeah. And had correspondence with Tim about
0: it. That's what I was wondering.
1: Yeah. You yeah. So Tim knew him. No, never met him physically, but they he had correspondence. He wrote to him at Harvard. He he heard about this this substance. He thought um, and he took it. He took it. I believe it's five times called it the great ego sublimator, mm. thought that perhaps it could be a cure for alcoholism mm. and, and took it. And uh, I mean, this is 1961, you know, before, yeah. before it was illegal and it was still a, you know, a therapeutic agent. Um, but most importantly, which I think in AA, AA, AA members hate this, but he did not change his sobriety date.
0: That's interesting.
1: Did not consider that to be a relapse. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's so interesting. Isn't it? Um, Yeah. I, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot, um, it's, uh, the next year is going to be the 50th anniversary of 1967. That's right. Summer of Love. Yeah. And a friend of mine who's, uh, you know, I, I, know a literary agent who said, you know, it's going to be 50th anniversary of 1968 soon. And maybe people books, I said, wait, what about 1967? Summer of Love. And, you know, um, it, there's sort of the 68 is known for the radical, well, the, the tragic assassinations King, of Dr. And Kennedy, King, King, yeah. and Kennedy and the, the demonstrations outside the Chicago convention and, um, and Nixon becoming president, but '67 had amazing things in it. You know, Muhammad Ali uh, dying the draft, and uh, um, and and the, and. But principally, the Summer of Love. To me, it was the sort of peak and ending of a certain period of psychedelic innocence. Mm. And of course, by the end of '67, the elders in haight Ashbury staged what they called the death of hippie. To, to recognize that the media had 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 taken away some of the magic of it, and that word and some of the external symbols could no longer have the the power because they had become so uh, cartoonized. Right. Um, but LSD was just part of it. There's just no getting around that whatever that sense of community was that we remember about the '60s, that LSD was part of it. For me, taking LSD was absolutely uh, a key point in my spiritual growth. Um, I I had sort of an intellectual theory that maybe there was a God and I was very open to it, but the idea of just personally perceiving kind of this unity of things and love and feeling that was just, there was no question. That's like a huge part of my soul and development. And that's when Ram Dass spoke about the connectivity between that and spirituality, it was like, that was the big, you know, light bulb going off and all that sort of thing. But there is that thing about it, it is an external chemical uh, you know, that, that, we speak about in the context and the people speak about in the context of, of what's supposed to be an experience, not related to form and externality. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, um, you know, I, I, I just wonder, I still wrestle with trying to juxtapose a certain amount of positive feelings about LSD, which I'll always be grateful to and a feeling of its limits. Mm-hmm. And, um, Obviously, you were around people who were thinking about this stuff a lot. Yeah. What, what have you concluded about this? Because it is definitely different from alcohol or heroin or cocaine. There's Absolutely. no question about that.
1: Yeah, th- there's no question about that. Well, a lot of, you know, a lot of preambles to, to, to this, a lot of factors, a lot of tent poles to sort of set up with that discussion. One, uh, Important to recognize and to know, and for us as a as a society, especially as we're heading into the, you know, firmly into the 21st century, is that we have to acknowledge that uh, psychedelic sacred medicines have been a part of every single indigenous culture since the dawn of man, mm. as far as we know. And that's just a fact. And for some reason, you know, modern mainstream science doesn't like to talk about that within the last, you know, 75 to 100 years. We've seemed to have erasing this part of history, ancient Egyptians, Mayans, all of it. Amazonians, all of it. So the fact that we've had these relationships with um, psychedelic plants and substances um, for so long, for, you know, since the dawn of man, brings into the question as whether or not our evolutionary consciousness is embedded within them. This is the Terence McKenna archaic revival thing, that our DNA is is encoded into, into these things in some way or another. Do you think that's true, or that's just sort of a? Uh, I don't know. I mean, that that's that's a, that's that's going pretty far all the way. I don't know about if our DNA is encoded into it, but our way of our, our our perception and I think our our view of mythology and I do think is encoded into it. And I do think you know if you go back however many years within your ancestral lineage lineages, um, you know, psychedelics were part of it. You know and so yes i do think that that is a part of it and i don't think it's external or internal i i think it's just uh i mean that's like it, to to me i mean i could make an argument that that's like saying well um you know eating eating broccoli is an external way to get sustenance you know and and uh, taking a mushroom is an external way to get uh divinity you know i I just think it's, it's just, it's, it's part of our, part of the human condition. It's just, you know, little, little things came along the way, along the path to, uh, to, to help us, to help us see differently. And those things include psychedelics, mushrooms, LSD, yoga, meditation, all of those things. So I'm not so much attached to the method, Mm. but as we know from our, our buddy Ram Dass, you know, which who experienced LSD however many hundred of time, uh, hundreds of times before he became Ram Dass, is that he was frustrated that you always have to come down. Yes, yes. And therein lies the rub. Yeah. You always got to come down. And um, add to that, which has always been a yeah, sort of a, a tricky area for me, is taking stuff back from the acid trip you know, when you're in it and you're having it really cool, but, you know, taking constructive things, building blocks back from it and integrating that into your non LSD life is tricky. Not everyone's equipped to do that. Yeah. Um, so with all of that said, you know, recognizing that you have to come back down and then, you know, then that puts you into the face of like, Oh, are you doing it just to get high? And, you know, these are all the gray areas of, of worth exploring. You know, I don't think that, the fact that you have to come down and it's such a this polarity this juxtaposition of being intoxicated not being intoxicated I don't think that lessens the value of it once you've done a little bit of spiritual work I think it's 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 just it's part of its nature it's like you know you have to go to sleep and you have to wake up you know you have to go up and you have to come down and not being so attached to that to that juxtaposition. And I think, yeah, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of rewards that, that can be had with it, but I, I, you know, the older I get, I sort of, am leaning a little bit more towards the Alan Watts um, sound bite of uh, I got the phone call. I can hang up the phone now. Mm. Meaning you don't have to keep going. back. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I don't
0: have that. Mm. Uh, uh, my sense is just um, for me at this time in my life, it doesn't seem to fit. Hmm. I, I wouldn't cast a judgment on it for anybody else, but it does. Uh, it doesn't seem to be fit the flow that I'm. I'm in this last period of my life, or or in the immediate future. I don't know what'll happen hmm. when I, later. <laughs> but <laughs> you know. But um, the um, uh, you know thinking about the sixties and all that. You know, it's just such mixed feelings about it for me. I, I I basically idealize a lot of it. I do believe my theory is that there was a pure core. And that it was not sustainable in the hothouse of the media and the mass culture and that it had to kind of go underground and it went underground through these internal communities and through these private experiences that that, that it was not uh, it was not the kind of thing that you could just put on the cover of Life magazine and turn on the world, which was kind of the, the delusion. Uh, the, you know, there's not a lot of evidence, you know, to me, if you judge these things by the level of compassion, which I, which to me is a pretty good yardstick hmm. uh, for morality and for a better world. I, 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 I'm not positive that, that it made people more compassionate or, or, but I'm not positive that it didn't. What, that psychedelic
1: specifically? Yeah. yeah
0: I, hmm. I, I, I just, I just don't, I just don't know what to make of the, of, I, I think of so. the whole
1: thing. I think it did. You know? Dan, I mean, I think you have to go back to one, you know, one of the great, um Tim quotes of them all is in order to understand the sixties, you must understand the fifties. Mm, yes. I mean, I I, I wasn't alive during the fifties, and you know, you were just barely alive. Yeah, I I was born but, in nineteen fifty, so right. I was just a kid. You yeah. were just a kid, but from everything we know, you know, that was not the most compassionate evolved time in the world, in our country, in our nation. So I think what the '60s did is it blew us open and blew us open to different uh, forms of mysticism. And look, man, we wouldn't have discovered Eastern spirituality if it weren't for psychedelics. Well, I wouldn't have.
0: I don't think None I, of us I would have. I don't, I don't think do I would have. I mean, the Eastern spirituality was present. I mean, Yogananda writes his book. Yes, it was. In Yo- the '40s. Vivekananda comes over in the 1890s. But it wasn't. It blew open though in the. Yeah. In the, in the but but yeah. but it was a more academic insular subculture, it blew open into the mass consciousness through, through the psychedelic period. That's, yeah. that, that's right. I mean, but it was, there were antecedents, the character to me that is the great hero who bridged the two was Allen Ginsberg Cause, cause, cause he in 1955 reads Howell. Yeah. You know, 55 Jesus. Yeah. That's right. It was that 1955. Wow. You that's know, crazy. And, um, you know, I, I, there's a, there's a, uh, um, the Ramdas video, um, what I say, what I want to say, the the website of Love Serve Remember uh has so many wonderful archival videos and audios of Ram Dass, and 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 one of them is a, a seven part YouTube that you can get on YouTube of a conversation him and Alan Ginsberg had, and so he says to Alan, he said I was so uh, self conscious about saying that I was gay. And you were so open about it. How did you do that? I wanted to, you know, I kept it under wraps (laughs) and I've got Harvard and I want all these externalities. And, um, and Ginsburg said, well, I met William Burroughs when I was 19 and he was my He he was my teacher. He, he came from this wealthy family and he had such contempt for the established order. And he was so encouraging of me to just be myself. That's how I was able to do it, you know, Hmm. but, um, you know, Allen in 55, um, you know, is that guy, you know. Wow.
1: So in the 50s, both Allen and Ginsburg were out?
0: Alan was, yeah, sure. Howell. Right, uh, Howell, of course. You yeah. know, is openly homosexual, yeah. uh, you know, sucking cocks and this and that. And, and right. that's 1955. Wow. You know, um, and, you know. Um, that's brave. And, and also just the whole um Exploding narrative, exploit, reinventing poetry, you, you, you know, um, and um, and he went to India before Richard Alpert did. Yeah, right. You, you know, I mean, he 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 was, uh, you know, um, he, he's he's to me the most amazing, hey. other than Martin Luther King, he's my favorite character of the 20th century. Oh, really? Interesting.
1: Yeah. Huh. Yeah. 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 I, I'd like to. Yeah, Alan was great. My I had this great um. Uh, you know, I think Alan, and, and I mean this with the most respect, this is not a dig, but Alan kind of had a little bit of a, a little bit of a crush on me when I was younger. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, he, he, he was, uh, he was so, so funny yeah. about it and he, he called me Z-A-C-H because he, for some reason he always insisted that Zach was spelled with a K. So he would call me Z-A-C-H and I, hmm. and I had this great afternoon once. I only spent one, one, well, I, was, I met him a few times, but I spent one really quality day with him where, um. Burroughs was um, displaying his uh, shotgun art mm. at this gallery at Bergamot Station in Santa Monica. And somehow I ended up being uh, Williams and uh, Alan's driver for the day. Nice. And I'm just driving them around LA. I'm only like twenty, nineteen, twenty, And it was just, it was fantastic. So good. Alan was amazing. Yeah.
0: Well, um, I always try to keep these things around 50 minutes. So okay. I think we're about 47 in. I'm I'm trying to think of what else would be fun to talk about mm-hmm. and, and useful to talk about. I just, um, tell me a little bit about before we end, you work with a number of rock artists as I did. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you you, you had a, 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 a more, you know, I'm so attached to my identity in the rock and roll business. It's what I hung on to for dear life as an identity mm-hmm. from the time I was 18. And I'm trying in my mid 60s to become more um, detached about it. But you, you sort of went in and out of it with some grace. But I know you, you certainly had exposure to it. And that's another one of these examples of um, a tension between uh, transcendence and materiality. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that's baked into the cake of rock and roll. It was a commercial art form before it was any other kind of an art form, but it is an art form and it it did end up being a vehicle and to this day it reaches people rock and roll is too narrow a construct obviously i have a son who only listens to hip hop and huh. it's a golden era in many people's opinion for pop but for for some of us older folks rock and roll was the primary way that we met each other and identified ourselves to each other and and to ourselves what is your feeling of once going from being a fan of someone who then worked in the business for a while yeah um what are some of the tensions and
1: observations you you bring to, to the well, conversation? Well, first of all, you know when I came into the rock and roll business, you know I, I didn't. I came from the marketing and advertising mm-hmm. world. I worked in an ad agency for years before that, and then I just kind of took my same skill set um, into the rock and roll business, and you know and and, and did that for a little just while. Just say some of the artists that you. Wanted. Oh yeah, I worked with U two and Coldplay and uh, and Garbage. So these are major, global, major, global artists. Yeah, I mean, the first thing, the first band that hired me was Coldplay, yeah. right? Kind of leaving the um, and at the time they were the biggest band in the world, pretty much the Viva La Vida campaign. And oh god, man! And it was just like what you were saying. It's like, look, I was a fan. You know, I'm a rock and roll fan, and just to be able to like jump into it at that level. Uh, as, you know, to, well, to get a paycheck and to pay my rent, but also as just a fan. I mean, the biggest thrill for me, Danny, was not so much the, I mean, working on digital marketing for Coldplay and you too is really cool. It was really fun. But the biggest thrill for me was to seeing, I've always been curious as a fan to see how bands work, how the dynamics work. How, what goes on when they're off stage and how just, not just the business, but just the actual dynamics of the band and how they view themselves. That was the coolest thing in the whole world to me is to see like, wow, this is how you 2 works. This is what they talk about. Mm. It's so neat for me. Yeah. And that was it. It was just a novelty for, for me. And, you know, I was, and as far as my work within it goes, I'm not being that self-deprecating, but I was good at it, but I wasn't like great at it. You know, I was good enough at it and, 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 you know, maybe I'd do it again someday, but it was just so cool just to watch these guys work and wow, this is, U2 is just about to play to a stadium of 110,000 people. And this is what they're talking about before the show. Hmm. That, that to me is fascinating.
0: And I think to their fans, they, they, um, there's certainly not just a pop group you two. I mean there's there's the the the, yeah. the passage of years Bono has developed a kind of celebrity that that has had some backlash. Uh there yeah. are some people that just are irritated by what they perceive as a self uh, self-congratulatory smugness. Yeah. At the same time, um you know, you could be really successful and not do anything for charity, you could be really successful and not have any content in what you're doing. So I tend to always give the benefit of the doubt to people at a high level of celebrity who try to shine some light but what what is your sense of the of the ratio of light and self promotion in that uh, in that artist but I think
1: uh I think YouTube's great I do I'm a fan and I think Bono is is fantastic at least he I there are a lot of levels to that at least he tries hmm you know, like product red and and that whole thing and and all the AIDS work. And at least he's out there taking swings at it. And I think, you know, I don't know this. I never got to know Bono that well. I only met him, you know, really a few times. I met him a few times, but I really think all of that, uh, you know, wearing the sunglasses and being the the sort of, you know, the, the self promotion and all of that thing. I, I think he is completely aware enough that, yeah, it, it, he's, he knows it's an act, it's a vehicle. He's playing a role he's playing. And that happened during the, uh, actung baby campaign where he could play this role of bloated rock star. And it was a great role to play on the stage in the, in the, in the, you know, in the environment of new media and just to go out there and, and act that way and to kind of be tongue in cheek and to be a little bit of a joke about it because it gets impressions. It's a way to stay in the media and, and do some good work. I mean, what other rock stars meeting with Obama? Doesn't happen that much. Well, of
0: course, he also met with Jesse Helms. You know, this was the great, uh, uh, and George W. <laughs> Bush. So, you know, right. uh, this was this was part of what irritated some people is that he was right. giving some uh, dignity through a superficial um, sense of charity to people that were otherwise doing bad things. On the other hand, uh, I do admire him myself. First of all, I like a lot of their music. Yeah. And, and, and I also feel that uh, all the people I grew up loving, John Lennon, Jimi Hendrix, Bob Dylan... In particular, all, all, you know, we're, we're also master self promoters. You don't, you don't become the Beatles by accident. You don't become, (laughs) nobody put a gun to Jimi Hendrix's head and said, you've got to light the guitar on fire or play with your teeth. He, he, he knew that was part of what was going to get attention. And Dylan is the great, unbelievable master of staying in the conversation. In addition to being a great artist, he knows we're talking about him and he wants us to talk about him. So I, uh, later. so I don't, I don't hold it against Bono, but he's an interesting, there's only a handful of these characters. Um, and I'm, I'm interested to see, um, all of them as they get older. I'm quite impressed with Bob Dylan at his old age. I must say, I think, Me his, too. I think, uh, you know, from his speech at music cares to his recent records, uh, to the reissues, uh, I love Chronicles. You know, I I think he's he's kept a level of artistry uh, that's 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 pretty impressive. It's never going to have the kind of cosmic impact that that he did at a certain period of his career, but it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty cool. All right, man. Thank cool. you very much for doing this and for hosting me. So I give you two thank yous. I urge anyone who's listening to this to listen to It's All Happening. Zach does his podcast three times as frequently as I do mine. So there's a lot more to listen to. And I'm grateful to be part of the community uh, of, uh, of hippie podcasters.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Danny. Later.
0: Thanks for listening to Danny Goldberg's Rock and Rolls Hour. We appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Danny. Thank you.